Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Simon Linstead. I'm the founder and the host of InfoSec Live and the host for this event today. Welcome to the second episode of the CISO Experience, proudly sponsored by Bramford Technology Labs and hosted by myself and InfoSec Live. This is the second episode after having Dexter Casey, the CISO of Centrica in the UK on last week. This week we've moved to the US, hence the slightly later time for those of us, those of you who are joining us live. And for that, I thank you very much. Please do like and subscribe if you enjoy the content. And for those of you that aren't watching live and are watching a recap, also please like and subscribe. That would be great. Really, really helps support us. So without too much further ado, a little bit of framing to in respect of what the event is actually about. The CISO experience, we've now got, I think, 39 guests lined up over the next few weeks, all leading CISOs in the US, all talking about the challenges the achievements they've made over the last few years, and the whole point of the series to try and share best ideas and practice. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on our first guest. It's Christopher Russell, the CISO from T0 Group. Here he is. Hey, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Very well. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's much appreciated. Yeah, excited to be here again. <laughs> again yes i think is it a year it must be a year now since you last came uh out. probably not quite a year but it seems it feels like it in in cybersecurity like years it. it's like kind of like dog years so it's probably been about a year for uh for us i'm, I'm feeling the dog years at the moment <laughs> definitely yeah so for those of you that haven't seen you before and didn't see you last time you were on do you mind just giving everyone a little bit of background about yourself and where you are now sure sure so uh currently i'm the CISO at t-zero group um my background in cybersec uh, started off, you know, as a firewall engineer, moved up to uh, kind of um, managing some MDR uh, teams that were onboarding uh, both SIM tools and endpoint detection tools and writing uh, detection rules for all these and uh, helping the customer implement them. And, uh, um, and so uh, that kind of set me up as a kind of a, pretty good experience across the board as far as tools go. And then I'd been kind of doing some blockchain kind of security type testing off the side. So when I put all this together, it kind of lined up good for me to kind of take over a CISO role. Uh, but before all that, um, I was in Intel and I did human intelligence. And so I had, you know, I'd been around, you know, classified systems, I've been around, you know, things like least privilege, RBAC, like all these things that are kind of just ingrained in me over those years in Intel. Um, and that kind of, you know, started my, my progress into the cybersecurity realm. But uh, it turns out that that Intel piece, the human intelligence piece dealing with people, I think is actually something that I use more and more as a CISO now than uh, I do kind of the tech stack. I'm still very technical. I still nerd out on this. I can, you know, I spend half my time doing that, but starting to learn that the human side of figuring out how to get stuff pushed through businesses, get, you know, getting champions of different business units and all that is something that is, uh, uh, very you know rewarding and kind of good that I have a kind of background in. So, so anyone who wants to be purely technical and move into leadership at some point, you sit down and figure out how to talk to people to get what you want. <laughs> do do you think um, the experience you had in the past has helped you adapt to that, or is it a skill set that you've had to learn completely from scratch? Um, so I think I had a little bit of it as just a person, but the the military training and then the, just doing human type intelligence every day where you're you know, trying to figure out what, what's motivating people and what drives people and figuring out how to like befriend and kind of start a relationship with them. That's something that definitely has helped me. And I, and, and I, I benefited from 
again, the training and then just doing it every day. So um, that's not something that, you know, I, like I said, I have a little bit of that, I think, and that's why I ended up in that field, but I definitely uh, benefited from the military kind of beating it into me. You're not, you're not the first person to say that um, who I've spoken to. It's, def it's definitely a huge benefit, I think, for anyone. Um, I'm going to go off a bit off tangent because this wasn't something I wanted to talk about, but you've mentioned blockchain. Um, mm. And I want to know how you got into that. Sure. So um, I don't know what it was, 2015, 2016, you know, everyone's starting to hear about things like, you know, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and, you know, Ripple, Verge, all these, you know, different coins. And for me, I always had a curiosity about like the tech underneath it all, really. So what I was doing was I would download the wallets, I would download the nodes, I do all these things. And because I had like, you know, some home lab firewalls and, you know, endpoint tools, EDR tools, see what was going process wise, I wanted to know what they looked like from the, to the security tool. What I found was all the security stuff just thought it was malware. So if you downloaded some, you know, block, you know, some sort of wallet that did some sort of peer to peer connection, your, your endpoint protection tool would think it's malware and just quarantine it. So I was like, well, that's interesting. And then when you look at how blockchain connects, again, peer-to-peer, -peer, these nodes, um, you know, the, the and the reputation of them is not usually good. If you're using firewalls and you're blocking things that don't have good reputations based on URLs, those are going to get blocked too. So what I was finding is the security tools of the legacy stack was not really meant or built to, you know, uh, kind of accept blockchain-type connections and processes. So I started kind of digging into how to make them work for that and, and not have to replace them with with new technology and th and that is possible then it isn't a complete barrier having the old yeah stuff. you have to write some custom applications and you have to you know you have to know what process you know child parent process interactions are going on with the particular wallets but you can write the exceptions and you can say under these conditions if this wallet does this this is fine for my system like i said a lot of the peer-to-peer -peer stuff you know most tools when they see that are like this isn't good you didn't nothing should be going peer-to-peer -peer on your computer but that's the way blockchain works so um it's you know it's some of the some of the like Palo Alto networks, they're starting to you know write their own application or their own custom applications for Bitcoin and Ethereum. So next generation firewalls can can see those sessions and identify them as that. But they don't they're not doing every coin out there. So if you have a wallet and you have some kind of odd new coin or, or whatnot, they're not writing custom applications for all that. It's just kind of the mainstream thing. So um, if you do want to get involved, do you yeah, think, do you think that um do you think that speaks volumes about the way, I mean, we're going completely off track now, but do you think that speaks volumes about the way the market's going, the, the kind of digital currency market? I mean, it's obviously, it's gone down to what, about 20,000, I think, at the moment. I, I mean, my, my opinion over the last year or so is that it's a correction that's needed to happen, like the markets in general. Um, yeah. You know, I, I agree too. Uh, I think it's a, a, a correction that has to happen. I mean, if you've, if you've been in crypto for a while, this kind of, it's a, it's a kind of a ladder up. I think yeah. there are some valuations from these projects that were probably unrealistic that needed to kind of come back down to earth, unfortunately. Um, but the underlying tech and the concepts and the ideas behind it all is something that's going to thrive and survive. Not all the coins will, not all the projects will, not all the companies will, but it's, you know, it's going to be in the, you know, it's going to be something that's happening. Um, I think we all have to kind of recognize in the near future, you know, there's going to be central currencies that are digital. It's just going to happen. <laughs> you know, China's do you think, already, China's do you think you'll get a, a digital digital dollar? Do you think that will happen, Chris? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, me too. Yeah, I mean, once you've seen what China did and they can like they can put uh, timing on your, your currency and you, they can claw it back, they can automatically have taxes taken out of every transaction. Once people see the power of how this works, 
It's just they don't know how to do it yet. So once the countries all figure out how to roll it out and how to do it in a safe and secure way, they're going to do it. Because, you know, you know, for example, let's say there's a stimulus package that, you know, the UK or US wants to roll out. They can say, hey, here's 200 bucks for everyone in the country. But you have to spend it in the next two weeks or it just goes away. Because they want people to go out and spend the money. Or they yeah. want to spend on certain things. They want to spend it on groceries. Like, hey, here's stimulus for groceries. Here's this. But you can't spend it on scratch tickets, whatever it is. You know, yeah. digital currencies allows you to have sorts of filters that just you know, without anyone having to supervise it can just kind of run through those sort of things and, and automatically make the right decision. I mean, I'm, I'm sold on it. I've been for a long time. Having a financial services background, though, it's always been a concern for me to invest in something where, one, it isn't regulated, and I suppose, two, it isn't understood enough to be regulated. And you look what's happened in the States the last week with the SEC, you know, uh, and you've now got a big lawsuit coming through. I wonder how many more of, of those kind of incidences we'll see until governments work out how they can regulate it safely and in a way that they can control it and make sure that they're the ones pushing it in the right directions. I think that's the challenge at the moment, isn't it? The whole point of blockchain and digital currency is that you're moving away from the central bank system. But... I don't think it's going to stay away from the central bank system forever, do you? Yeah, I think we're going to have both is what we're going to have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, and there's benefits to both centralized and decentralized blockchain stuff. And, and, to, and to be clear, I'm, I'm not one of those crypto bros that's like, you know, all about like Bitcoin's the answer for all our problems. It's not. But it's, no. it's an answer for some of our problems. And it's, you know, it's got value and it's a thing and, and whatnot. Um, but you're right. I mean, um, there's certain use cases and certain times where being able to transact on, on the web with digital currencies can be really convenient and nice. But you want your life savings and a project that if it get if it gets lost, you don't have a number to call to ask what happened and maybe I think, I think the thing is 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 back to something we, we were talking about earlier actually about marketing before we went on. And it's been very similar with Bitcoin, where you've seen a push from lots of celebrities. It's become mainstream. Yeah. People have had the extra stimulus cash. They've, they've had extra money and they've all they've seen are their wallets going up. And, mm. you know, I've got friends who, who've done it and done quite well out of it over a couple of years. But then people have put money in there they can't afford to lose. And I think yeah. that that's the big the big leveler is now where people are realizing that it isn't just something that keeps going up you know you can lose money i mean i've always said without wanting to give investment advice i was waiting for it to go down to 15 and then i'm sticking my whole pension in it but that's a personal decision <laughs> yeah i mean that, again yeah with the, with the short history of it people have seen mostly good if you bought 2015 16 17 18 even with this down part you're up quite a bit there's stuff i bought for a sub penny that went up to like 27 cents and that was a lot of money that I didn't really do much to get. So that's really attractive. It's hard not to, hey, I'll just throw a hundred bucks in here or whatever. But like you said, when people start throwing in their, you know, the cash out the 401ks and putting everything from, you know, taking a second mortgage in the house, that's where I think people, you know, need to be tempered a little bit because it's, there is a lot of uncertainty there. And what I think we're going to find is a lot of these crypto coins are actually being treated like securities. And that's when the governments are going to come in and say, this is yeah. a digital security. This is something that was like a capital raise. This is something that you own ownership in something and you get, you know, you know, you get residual income from. So that part's going to get, you know, sorted out over the next year or two. But but something will remain and we'll have both centralized and decentralized blockchains and everyone will get a little bit of what they want. I mean, the, the one good thing that's come out of, of the price crash is the fact I don't get three or four messages in my LinkedIn inbox every day trying to sell me crypto. I still do. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you must be on the special list, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I, you know, it's like I'm blockchain in my, my LinkedIn stuff, but I'm, I'm not someone looking for any investments. You're hitting all those keywords. Now, look, let, yeah. let me try and get things back on track, because as usual, sure. I've digressed, of yeah. course. So let's, I've got three questions. Um, the first one is, what's your biggest success in your working career? Um, so that's a hard one, because there was some stuff back in the Intel days, I think, were pretty, you know, important to me, but those are, you know, maybe more on the classified side. So well, let's, let's say, let's say yeah. successes and on what yeah. you can talk about. Yeah. Roger. Um, so I've been thinking about this and what I've come, what I've come to find, I feel is the most successful things I've done is when I'm able to basically implement a project, not from a technical standpoint, although there's always technical um, challenges, it's when I get it rolled out and I get the business buy-in and, and it actually like it, it, it's something that's adopted and people want to use and, and are happy about. Um, I'll use an example. It's not maybe my greatest success by any means, but it's what I felt great about because it's what I wanted to do and it's working. So for, you know, we mentioned shift left earlier before we got on and it's a, you know, some people are talking about and people have been trying to do this for a long time. It's not a new concept. You know, the earlier you identify vulnerabilities with static code analysis and dynamic code analysis, all these things, the better off you are with your applications. And so everyone wants to find out earlier in the process so, there's, you know, they can just, you know, build better. And the the challenge is, has was for a while, the technology. It was hard to do. It was hard to implement. It was hard to find it all. Um, that's been solved. But now the problem is we've got so much visibility and so many things that are, could be vulnerable that, you um, we have a kind of a people and process problem where they don't know how to, to make it work in an organization. And I'll explain, I'll explain why. So you plug in your, your widget that does static code analysis and you look at, and it looks at all your libraries and it says, you've got like 10,000 vulnerabilities. And the first thing you go is crap. Where do I start? <laughs> 10,000, you know, a bunch of criticals, a bunch of highs, a bunch of mediums, whatever. And so people have this moment where they're like, Oh man, like, I'm not going to get developers to take all the time needed to go through 10,000. You could just issue them 250,000 JIRA tickets. I'm sure they'd work their exactly, way through. Exactly. Exactly. So it comes to a grinding halt where it's like, Oh my God, this is, and, and especially if you, if, if you fully automate this, there are just, it's automatically doing merge requests. It's already, you know, there's all these things that just automate this noise. And when you hit the technical people with a lot of noise, it is stop listening. Yeah. So what you have to do is roll these things out in kind of this like crawl, walk, run method where you're not, you're basically hiding, you know, the results from them and you're curating, okay, this is the priority this week. This is the priority for the sprint. Fix spring boot, fix the log 4J last year, whatever it is, upgrade this. And you got to kind of piecemeal that for a while in a very slow methodical process where it's, it's digestible for them, but you're making progress. And, you, and you've got this giant mountain behind you that no one sees of these vulnerabilities that, you, you, you know, some of which aren't that important, but you just you don't want to you know, just leave them there. And so they, you know, they have to get rolled into some normal patching cycle. But you have to just curate this and prioritize it in a way that makes sense so that they, they have a reasonable you know, amount to do. And then they and then when they see that you're not just hitting them with 10,000 alerts and, and vulnerabilities, they actually want to fix things because it's like, OK, you give me one or two things a week. That's reasonable. You know, I can, and, and then they can start doing it more real time. You start giving the tools to, okay, instead of waiting until your project's done, let's give you a plugin that goes, that connects right to your, your, um, 
your tool, whether it's Sublime or, or IntelliJ or whatever, and you can run the analysis as you're writing, and then you yeah. can fix stuff as you're doing it, um, and, and, and you can see the feedback, and you start giving them this, this process that they buy into. When you start seeing the developers buying into this process of doing of shifting left, and, and you start seeing those, those vulnerabilities go down, you start seeing less new ones coming up each week, this process is what I found the most rewarding because I've just seen it fail so many times. I've seen a lot of people throw a lot of different technologies at it. And I've just seen a lot, a lot of just, you, you get somewhere and then you just, you kind of end up with a, a, a just a bigger stack at the end. Cause this, it doesn't, it doesn't end. So starting to see that. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I, I mean, you know, I'm not technical, right? <laughs> I think everyone who's watching this is watched me before knows I'm not technical. However, I have been looking into AppSec a fair bit recently. The firm I've, I'm doing some work with at the moment are heavily into AppSec. And one of the things when we're talking about shifting left is it's all very well scanning everything in the pipeline. But it, doesn't it make sense to start doing that at the repo stage before people drag stuff in? Now, I know there's, yeah. I think, one, one provider in the marketplace who does that. I'm not going to say who it is, but it links up with their own SAST and DAST scanners, I believe. Yeah. I think... In a, in a perfect world, obviously, that, that would be ideal. But when you're brought into a situation that isn't like that from the start, obviously, there's only so far you can shift left, I suppose. Yeah, and, and, and that's where people stumble. They, 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 they add it after they've already, everything's already in production. You know, they, didn't, they didn't do this the whole time. And then, they, and then they're like, okay, it's time to security. So they plug in this, the, the, the code analysis and they see just this, this giant mess. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and so that and it because it's really daunting, and everyone's like, "Oh man, like this is this is just never going to end." And you just kind of got to methodically, you know, like I said, you know, let the security team curate priority for that team and kind of work through it. But if you're doing it from the beginning, like you said, and you are shifting left, whether it's the repo level or, like I said, locally, well, before they even put it in the repo when they're doing IntelliJ or any or whatever I or whatever they're they're using to compile, there are plugins for all these tools. That they can run these these scans locally, and the results will go back to the platform that you're using. The security team will be notified. They can immediately, you know, get I get a Slack message that someone ran it. I immediately come back. I run like what what can be mitigated. What actually has an exploit? I immediately send that back to them. Like before this even goes to the next step to the repo, fix these things. Yeah, because there's an exploit for this, and there's a way to fix it right now. Don't even put it in the repo until this is upgraded or updated. And so. To me, seeing that working and seeing people using that and, 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 and people being excited about it and, and actually adopting it, again, not to some people that may not feel like the biggest success, but for me, it's, it's, been, it's been the most worrying thing because I feel like it's something that just people have struggled with and to, yeah. and to kind of turn the corner from that giant mountain of vulnerabilities that I've seen in other orgs to a thing where we're being very proactive. I just got really excited about it. <laughs> I think I think rightly so. I mean, all the conversations I have with security teams who work with developers, it's a very similar conversation. And there's another buzzword or a couple of buzzwords that I'll bring up now because everyone's got differing opinions on this. But another another piece of terminology you hear a lot in the DevSecOps, DevSecOps world is, um, what's the word? Security champions. Mm, yep. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's a term that I use when I, I tell people that you, when you're trying to roll out anything, you need security champions in all the business units for two reasons. A, you need to understand how the tool's going to work for them. So you need to be talking to them before you even bring a tool into the picture. And then after you bring a tool in the picture, you need to their feedback on this isn't working for us. This is a giant deviation from our flow. 
so that you can get it back to a state where it's you know more in line and they're more apt to use it because as one thing we know if humans are you know faced with a roadblock they're just going to go around it and so you can't just be like security says no until you do this you have to find a way to get them to securely yes and you know you have to be a little creative sometimes but i think i think the way one of the big wins for you is by hiding or obfuscating the big problem from them and giving it to them in small manageable chunks i think yeah. A lot of feedback I've heard from other developer teams is that why I mentioned the Jira tickets earlier is that they'll get, you know, a big stream of these tickets through and they'll just ignore them because mm -hmm. they, they've got no interest in getting it done. And I suppose unless you've got that security champion or so embedded security within the developer team, it's very difficult. And going off on, on the developer thing a little bit more, especially when some firms are pulling in developers from multiple locations around the world, using multiple repos and it's just an absolute mess isn't it yeah it can be I've, I've seen some you know not so great situations back when i was dealing with customer environments like that um i'm fortunate that we you know i came into a situation where that wasn't such a big issue but that's definitely probably not the norm no. and and you're right with the with the champion piece is you know you enable a couple of people to to kind of understand how this works it's their force multipliers because then they're just, it's not even that they have to, you know, once they know, you know, once they start learning some of the basics of the AppSec piece and shifting left, they're just incorporating it into their, you know, everything they do from then on. And then you don't have to necessarily stay on top of them. There's, it's part, I mean, th these are really smart people. Developers are some of the smartest people in the organization. Um, and, you know, and they love automation and they love quick fixes and they love being able to, to kind of just elegantly solve these problems. So when you get to that state, they really buy into it. Now, when we're, when we're hiding that big pile in the beginning, what the security team has to do is have compensating controls for all that, you know? Yeah. So it's like, okay, this is a security problem right now. So if these are vulnerabilities, I have to have my WAF checking for this. I have to have detections for this. You have to have all this other stuff to, to, to take care of that while you work through that kind of backlog. And so that's a lot of work too, but that's what the security team has to do until, you know, that, that you know, vulnerability is remediated. And, and you're right, it's about managing the relationship between the developer and the security team, or as you rightly say, with either a security champion or a security professional, mm -hmm. having them embedded in the team so it becomes, I suppose, second nature and not us and them, because a lot of the yeah. relationships I see, it tends to be us and them. And with some of the testing um, my firm have been doing at the moment, you know, we have problems with some clients who just don't want you to test, especially if it's a third-party test that you're doing. They're looking for every excuse not to be tested or they know that's going to come back bad and they have all this work and they don't want to, just don't want to even open that door. So they just want to put their head in the sand and pretend it's like yeah. not a real problem. Well, I think as Paul Rogers said in the comment earlier, fixing something is so much harder than doing it right the first time. And I think yeah. it's the whole mindset mindset shift, though, isn't it, within kind of developers that the security has got to be thought of from the start. Yeah, and I don't blame developers because they're, you know, they're they're working on these tight sprints. They they have deadlines. There's many things they got to do. I mean, they work insane hours. They're, you know, they. I've seen them just do magic. You know, build something from scratch just overnight to fix a problem. Like, and, and don't it, forget the financial pressures from the board as well about yeah, yeah, you know. Exactly. So like I, you know, I'm in awe of them, and it's just a matter of like their, you know, their primary task is to you know get something done. Security can't come in and just make it harder. They're just going to resent that. So you got to figure out how to enable them, support them, uh, and figure out how to let them do it the way they want to do, but in a secure way. So it's it's a real, you know, 
it's not like there's a million different ways you can, you know, deal with the, the developers from a security standpoint, but you can't just do one size fit all. You have to sit down, you have to deal with people a little bit differently, you have to deal with different teams differently, you have to like figure out a way to work with them. And it's, you know, the, the leader's job to, to, to make it work from a, from a buy-in perspective. You can't just say, no, you have to do it this way. They'll find a way around it. Yeah. And, and that's all part of what you were talking about earlier, which is developing relationships and yes. learning how to communicate with all different types of people. And people in your job is, is super difficult because on one hand, you've got the C-suite to be discussing with. And then on the other hand, you've got developers talking in different language. So I, I don't don't envy your job. Um, well, I do a little bit, I suppose, Chris, but I don't think I'd want the stress and pressure that you have because it's quite immense, isn't it? Yeah, I think in a lot of orgs, it's, it, it is bad because, like you said, those are two different languages. You've got a technical language. You've got a business risk language from a board level. These are just two different languages that, that not many people can actually translate between. And you have to. You have to learn how to translate those two things so that the, you know, the, the, the tech people understand from a business perspective, look, if this doesn't work, there is no business. So <laughs> this has, you know, and then from the business side that, you know, understanding the risk, like, look, I understand you want it delivered tomorrow, but this is the risk that. Yeah. And then, it, and then my favorite three words when trying to deal with board members in the past is which means that, and I'm sure there's other, other terminologies, but then trying to relate it to something they understand and a risk mm -hmm. that they feel. And the good thing, is, I, I'm lucky right now. I've come in at a point where I would say it's very few executives are, do not, do not have, do not not have cybersecurity on the radar. It's, it's, it's become such a thing. Everyone's been through issues and, and breaches and seen the news and, and seen what it can do to people's careers and businesses that it's, it's not like it was before where everyone's like, well, it's not our problem, whatever. I mean, like uh, these days, most executives know it's an issue and are being a little bit more proactive. They're really trying to support cybersecurity. So like it is in a much better state than it was even just a couple of years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky that I'm, you know, I'm in this spot now where it's not such a hard sell. You know, you, you don't have to come up with really creative ways to explain the risk. They, they get it more because of just the kind of repetition of, of yeah. it's just been so, I mean, every year there's so many breaches now that it's hard not to even be aware of it. And, and then the ramifications. I completely agree. Um, okay. Next question then. So let's, let's stick on buzzwords because there's loads of them around at the moment. We've talked about shifting left. Um, the next one that I saw at both RSA and InfoSec Europe was zero trust, which great idea. Um, however, isn't that what security professionals have been trying to do for the past 15 years, but just not called it that? Or have I got this completely wrong, Chris? Yes and no. So zero trust is something that it's a buzzword that people are probably a little bit annoyed with because this last year it's really blown up. But this is something I was familiar with going back several years that, you know, yeah. places like uh, Critical Star where I worked, they were very big on zero trust. Palatin Networks was very big on zero trust. And what's hard is that it's not a product. It's a methodology. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a process more than anything. Some products can, can assist with it better, but you can't just buy zero trust. And, you know, fundamentally it's, instead of allowing everything and trying to identify the bad stuff, let's not allow anything and only allow the good stuff at, you know, to, for lack of a, a better definition. It's like in its essence, it's taking that mindset instead of having, okay, we're gonna have a firewall and we're gonna have it open to the world, but we're going to block bad URLs and we're going to block, you know, bad IPs. And we're going to try and figure out who the bad guys are in real time, which is impossible. 
now we're we're blocking everything, but we're only allowing what we know is good stuff. You know, like only these cyber sessions are good. Only these type of applications are good. Um, and that's something you can do with a bunch of different tools. It's not just a firewall thing. It's an endpoint detection and response thing. It's a SIM thing. It's, you know, anything that has a use case, it's a, it's a, it's a, a way of setting it up. And it's not that it's super complicated, but what, what happens is, is there's disruptions to business availability and applications because you have to know what good is. And most people don't even know what applications are running in their environment. I think the, the other the other big part of it from what I've heard is user permissions. I mean, yeah. historically, historically, users have had kind of access to loads of stuff that they don't need access to. And yeah, yeah, least privilege kind of pick up pick, picks off of zero trust. Where um, let's say, you know, I, let's say I'm an admin for my organization, which which I am. But does that mean I should always be able to do whatever I want at all times from all locations? No. Even as an admin, I should have to come from a certain place during certain business hours, doing certain activities that are within the scope of what I should do. And and there should be a way if that needs to change rapidly that we can go through a process of proving that. But it shouldn't just be me deciding, OK, I'm going to up my privileges. It should be, a, you know, just a couple couple of different people being agreeing to it and saying, yeah, OK, for this thing, we need to up your privileges or whatever. And, and that's something that, you know. It's, it's a lot of work and it, again, it requires more tooling to be able to granularly permit all this stuff. And, and the technology is kind of there now, but it's a little bit disparate because we use so many different apps and so many different SaaS solutions that people are still kind of struggling with that. But we still got to do our best to say, look, even if you're, you know, the, you know, even as the CISO, there's certain things I just don't need access to. There's certain data I don't need to see raw, unencrypted. So there's no reason to give me that access. So let's not do that. And, you know, the basics of doing these reviews on, on privilege and, and permissions and, and, and privilege creep, you know, it's part of every audit and people, you know, when they go through the audits kind of explain what they're doing, but we're still really bad at those basics, you know? So it's really easy when credentials get, you know, compromised and, and users get compromised that you, they find that they all these permissions they never needed to have. And if they just been locked down a little bit more, the, the, the compromise would have been probably less significant. And it's, again, it comes down to the basics because it's, it's unpopular. It's unpopular to restrict permissions and then people have to ask a couple of times. It is, oh, I'm frustrated. I'm so tired of having to ask for this, but it's, it's gotta be the way it is. Yeah. Is, is it normally the higher level employees who have the biggest problem with that as well? Yeah, um, I think historically, yeah, I think it's a little bit better now. I think, I think, I think high-level employees now are thinking like, look, I don't even want the liability of it, so like, don't even, don't even give me access to that because I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to own it. But, but historically, it was historically, it was like, well, I'm a VP, I should be able to see and do whatever I want whenever I want, and that that mentality has changed, luckily. But it, it's still, you know, in certain organizations, it's hard to, to, you know, as a leader admit, look, I don't even need these privileges. I don't need access to this. I, I don't go in and do any of these things. So as much as it's nice to say I have all this, like just removing it would be safer for everyone, you know, if I'm really not using it. And most tools now will say, look, you haven't used these permissions in 365 days. So why do you even have them? You know, Google, yeah. AWS, Azure, they will tell you if you've got a role in there that you're using and you're not using any of it. I mean, Someone just has to go, it's just, again, it's a tedious work because you, you go through all these different roles and you have to keep updating it. And, and people would rather some sort of automated tool that they buy that tells them everything's fine. Well, it's funny you should say that, isn't it? Because 
one of my big bugbears in the industry is it's driven by the big companies with the marketing budgets who do have these magical box solutions. And I'm not going to sit here and say there isn't a place for them because there is, but it isn't just them that you need, is it? Shall we, shall we talk about that for a minute? The importance of the human element, maybe. Yeah, this is something that, I mean, it's not unique to me or you. I think a lot of people see this and I think we've reached a part where it's, we're, reach, we're reaching kind of a ridiculous level of um, everyone's building a security product that does everything. It doesn't do anything particularly well, but it does everything sort of okay. And they want to keep just, in, instead of it, it doing what it does well, they want to crap, you know, cram in more, um, more capabilities so they can use more buzzwords and it can be more compliance check marks so it can get bought. And like you said, they're, they're working on the marketing piece. And we were at a point where we were kind of contracting the amount of companies doing this. Like there was a lot of uh, acquisitions. So we had a couple main players and they were kind of buying everything up and we were kind of getting away from that platform thing. But I would say in the last year or two, there's just explode. There's even, I don't know, there's, I, I, there's security companies I've even heard of. And that, and why, and that, that's new for me. It's new for me that I'm hearing new ones every day. There's yeah. people come up with, with you know. But aren't, but aren't they all, I mean, again, I've only been in the industry now for two years, but walking around RSA conference, it seemed like everyone was doing, not everyone, it's an exaggeration, but a lot of people were reinventing the same wheel that's already there, but just putting different spokes on it. Yep. Yep. And they're marketing it. And um, there is some, I won't name the companies, but no, there's some, yeah, <laughs> but there are some companies that it worked. They IPO'd, they made a ton of money. The founders made a ton of money, the employees made, and it, and they have these giant valuations. The company will never make the money that the valuation says they did because they yeah. literally were customers, but it worked. And so like a tech over again, isn't it? Yeah. So, so that's, uh, you know, you know, the last two years, you know, a lot of, a lot of large funding rounds, a lot of, you know, VC money, like people were, were, were do, you know, doing well with this. And I think the door is finally shutting a little bit on that. I think there's going to be a little bit more scrutiny. I think we'll see some of these smaller companies are going to get eaten up or go away altogether. And we'll be back to more of like, you know, a couple bigger players, a couple new players will be fine, but I don't think we'll have nearly as much kind of silly money and valuations as we've had the last two, three years. I think with, um, with the metaverse firmly on its way, I think that there's a lot of buying up going on across the industry, isn't there? You know, the big players are buying up all the gaming companies, the security companies are buying up the smaller players. And I think, it isn't good for competition, um, but I can't see how that's going to change moving forward because of where the money's concentrated. Yeah, it's an interesting thing you bring up that, uh, you know, we, we have, yeah, we have this whole other you know, dimension, if we're going to call it, uh, that's going to have this whole other kind of e-commerce, a whole other ecosystem that's going to happen digitally. And everyone's just figuring out how do I monetize this and how do I, how do I become a product that can, make money in this environment and it's not hey how do i make this environment safer for my kids how to make mm -hmm. this environment safe for consumers how do we i mean account takeovers and fraud are still just prevalent across yeah just, just you know 
how many how many people you know, how many people listening how many people's mothers or fathers have been hit with some sort of password scam where they yeah. gave up their password the AOL account and then that AOL account was their their banking email and everything and they were able to someone's able to password reset and get everything there's no protection for consumers no one's selling yeah, it to my wife's best friend from the school playground yeah, about it happens to everyone and it, there's no products aimed at helping people if you're not part of an organization yeah. you don't have an EDREPP tool or some sort of like DLP product doesn't let you put your password in the wrong site or anything like that. So no one's trying to actually secure anything. They're just trying to figure out how to monetize it. Monetization. And, and the thing is, without wanting to use the wrong terminology, I do feel like our children have been groomed for this now for 10 years. And I'll tell you why I say that. So my now 17-year-old, when he was, I think he was about nine, he he was linked on my iPhone, you know, like we used to do before I thought about security. And he spent well over a thousand pound on Jake, it was on Clash of Clans. So again, yeah. he's being conditioned to buy stuff that has no tangible value. Move on to my now nearly 14-year-old son. A few years after this had happened, dad still hadn't learned his lesson. And Jude, I'll tell you his name, Jude then decided to buy loads of skins on Fortnite. And when I say loads, I mean, you know, 1,600 quids worth. The boy had some skins, you know, he was pleased. Oh. But again, in his mind, it was worth spending that money. But for me, the metaverse has got so much potential, right, for education, for, for a million things. It could do, do so much good. But equally, it's horrifying the fact that we're in this economy where or this, this separate economy is springing up where you can buy NFTs and you can buy, you know, it'll be Nike trainers in the metaverse. It'll be a, a McDonald's that you can't eat. And I just think maybe it's because I'm nearly 50, but it seems like the world's gone mad to me, Chris. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there are there is, you know, the newer generations are getting conditioned that this is acceptable. You know, it, it's like real objects, like you really own it. It really exists, even if it's digital. And, you know, I, I see... I, you know, I see some value there. I mean, I see that being a thing if, you know, if, if, if in the future, I mean, you know, right now we're on a video conference, you and I aren't sitting yeah. face to face. I mean, it, you know, some sort of virtual version that is not unheard of. And, you know, we could, I could not have to wear a suit and just have yeah. a really cool looking one instead of this and be not cool wearing a t-shirt. So like things like, okay, that's cool. But, but no one's sitting down and talking about like, Hey, how do we actually protect this environment? how do we, you know, provide some security and safety? How do we protect people's identities and their data and these, these things they're buying that are, if we're going to call them real, then there needs to be ways to not, you know, protect them from being stolen or get them back or hold people accountable for stealing them. There's no, there's, we don't even have laws in place to explain what happens when someone steals your skins or. No. Well, look at the, look at the mess we're in with our own personal data now. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, no, no one owns their own personal data. It's all owned by other companies who've scraped it off the internet or collected it somewhere. And unless that changes, I think I don't see how the metaverse can be regulated and governed. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I agree. I think it, it will be hard to because it's you know by definition a lot of laws. It doesn't probably really exist. It's just you know something that we accept as a, a fun thing. But but you're right. But but my point though is this has become. It's going to become bigger. It's going to be tied into more things. There's going to be actually monetary. There's going to be a lot of money in this and people, yeah. you know, spending a lot of time and a lot of effort, and whatever. And, and like any new technology, we don't worry about the security part till, till much later. So, you know, we were mentioning crypto earlier and, you know, web three and, you know, central currencies and all this, 
there's not that many people have experienced doing security for that yet because they were still building it. Yeah. You know, so how, I mean, we just don't have the experts in it. You know, we <laughs> you hear about some of these breaches um, for, again, crypto, I'm using crypto companies as an example, yeah. but it could be anything. Um, there's a, you know, there's a swap, you know, service and they, they got milked for, you know, 10 million ETH, ETH or whatever. There's not enough people in there that know how to actually audit the smart contracts, do it right or whatever. There's barely enough people who know how to build this stuff, never mind secure it. So security is always one step behind on this unless, unless, you know, some of these builders, again, get some of these fundamentals in their head from things like AppSec, shifting left and some of these kind of fundamentals. And we're still just behind on that. And I see, I see again, the metaverse is being a place we're already kind of failing on because I've already hearing stories about bad things happening there and there's really nothing people can do about it. And it's like, haven't we learned anything about we have to have some, you know, not necessarily checks and balances, but way to protect people, protect their assets, you know, a way to get things back. And, and, and just no one's got that mentality yet. And we're going to have new developers. The gold rush has started, Chris. The gold rush has started. Everyone's just chasing the money now. Yeah. And, that, and that's the big problem. I don't think human nature is ever going to change on on that part of it. But you're right. If you can embed the security mindset in the people who are developing it in the first place, I think it's the only way that we can solve the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So last question. We've got about 15 minutes left. Biggest challenges at the moment, either for you, if you don't want to talk about specific challenges, challenges in the industry. We've covered off a couple already, but anything yeah. else in particular? So um, we already talked about a lot, so I'll just mention again, but the, the security industries, the, the companies right now, I think they're focusing too much on marketing, focusing too much on checking a lot of boxes. I think we need to get back to, look, we're a company that does this and we do it the best. And this is, we do this one thing and we do it really great. And I, and I wish people would try and get away from, we do everything kind of, because it just doesn't help anyone. No. Um, the fundamentals is something that I feel like we're, we're sort of losing a little bit on. And because we're, we're, we're getting lazy because technology is making things kind of easy, but technology doesn't solve the, the problems that we keep getting hit by because we buy all this expensive stuff and these attacks are still phishing, social engineering, really basic I am and permission stuff that we just were failing on. Um, I'll mention the, the colonial pipeline was, you know, some, VPN that no one remembered had a really weak password and it was an intern and everyone talks about that as kind of you know the blame but the problem isn't that the problem is is that who set up the password policy that's a basic thing to not allow whatever it was summer one two three to be a password that just shouldn't even be ever allowed in an organization there's a way in anything that allows you to have a password to have a criteria and it should be x amount of characters with this 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 and this and that should just be an automatic thing once you set it day one you can never have a weak password after that in your organization because you've set this policy and i still today still find organizations have weak passwords because they don't have a password policy yeah do you think I mean, the other the other p, the other p word i think is quite relevant as well i mean th this is using my financial services experience and a couple of conversations i've had recently in this industry policy is super important but what's equally important and what some people miss is the robust processes behind it to mm -hmm. implement. So some companies have got lots of policies written down, um, not naming any names, but you know, there's the tick box mentality out there. But when it comes to those policies being delivered and adhered to, they haven't got a robust policy behind a uh, process behind them. Yeah, I agree with that hundred um, percent. A lot of places they did a bunch of policies, maybe from like 10 years ago, five years ago, they copy and pasted something. So it all yeah, means someone else's. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, it all, so for an audit, it all looks great, but you're right. It doesn't actually match what the business does. It doesn't actually fit the needs of the business. It doesn't work with the workflow of what people do. And so you, you, you know, every time your organization changes how the business runs a little bit, those policies will be updated to reflect that. And no one's going back and, and redoing that all that much. I'm not trying to brag, but I do go back and redo pay, do policies when it's like, okay, you know what? Um, you know, uh, you know, a long time ago, there was some encryption policy for something. What we found is people were being too strict and we weren't able to use our data because everyone thought, okay, look, this has to be encrypted all the time. It can never be encrypted. It's like, what's the point of even collecting it if we're just going to keep it encrypted all the time and just shove it in the thing and no one can ever see it? No, the business can collect this information. There just has to be certain conditions in which certain people are allowed to use it to do certain things that are authorized. Otherwise, why even collect it? And and those are things that, you know, you have to constantly kind of go back and reevaluate the kind of policy part and say, hey, does this actually match how the business runs anymore? Because, again, with the security gets kind of this mindset of like, we're, we're the office of no, we're going to tell everyone how you do it, when you do it, whatever. When the reality is like your job is really to figure out how to get everyone to be able to do what they want from a product perspective, from a business perspective, securely. Yeah. So you kind of need to look at what the business is doing, what their, what their strategic goals are, where they're going to and say, OK, we're going to be, we're going to go from this on-prem thing, this cloud, you know, based version where the, with a SaaS and whatever, how do I update everything so that we support that as opposed to telling them like, look, that's, it's not secure. You can't use that. Well, everything. The, the other thing when it comes to implementing um, cloud migrations and you see it with big enterprise firms quite a lot is they put a lot of effort into the migration part or outsourcing the migration part, but they haven't actually got anyone in-house after it's done to kind of pick up any pieces. That knows how it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then and then they don't know, and, and, and you know, the people who did the migration, they don't know a lot about the business value of it. So they did what made sense from a migration standpoint or technical standpoint, but it may not make sense from a business flow standpoint you know, there, there might have been stuff they even know was sensitive data or important data. I mean, there's just, you know, they don't have that business context. So the, the, the actual company should be so embedded with them that they know everything going on. And you're right, that doesn't happen. They just like hire someone to kind of cut and paste it in. And then the other thing is when they do that, they also cut and paste the problems from a data center into the cloud, which is you should, you should basically have to re-architect the whole thing. And if you don't have anyone in your organization that knows how to architect that, you probably shouldn't even go to the cloud. <laughs> I think it's, it's you've said the word several times now throughout the conversation the word embedded and I think it, the mentality especially with a lot of penetration testing is the testers come in they pull your pants down they tell you that this is crap this is wrong you need to fix this this is broken they give you a report and then they walk off and mm -hmm. for me I don't see how especially with smaller companies how one that helps um, because they probably haven't got the resources to deal with the remediation. It seems like that part's wrong. And you hear, use another buzzword because we've been talking about loads, but purple teaming. Um, purple yeah, teaming yeah. is actually one, I might not like the word, like the color purple, but it makes a lot of sense. It's just, I think for smaller firms, it's, un it's not affordable. You know, it, it's, it's a cost thing perhaps, but there must be there must be a way around that. How how do you deal with that in your business? Yeah, I've been thinking about that too, and and I think you're right. Like purple teaming obviously is a good solution to the to the kind of problems that you mentioned. But again, most organizations can't afford a full blown purple team, and, and and maybe even the operation of how you kind of run through it. 
But, but what I am seeing now and what we didn't decide before is we didn't have as many red teamers before, like good red teamers. I feel like it's exploding right now. We're getting a lot of people coming in InfoSec on that part. And I'm thinking and I'm, I'm hoping that what this is going to mean is it's when they, when, when we kind of going to we probably may already have reached critical mass on how many pen testers are getting higher. A lot of these people are going to end up on blue teams doing other stuff too. Yeah. because they have that background now when they can do both maybe it's not a traditional purple team but they can you know if, if you can yeah. actually wear both hats you can test on one end and go back and fix on the other that would be ideal or if you're getting blue teamers to cross train a little bit onto the the red teaming so they can do some of the testing i think that's what the evolution will be a little bit for some of the smaller orgs you know in smaller orgs everyone has to wear a couple hats and yeah. because of the training and availability of, of red team tactics kind of opening up and a lot of free education, hack the box, this, if we can get more blue teamers on board with that, that's great. Or if we just get more red teamers that have that background to get some blue team skills and then do both. I, I think, I think that something like that I'm hoping is what's going to come out of all this. I, I hope so too. I've seen it recently actually with, with Bramfit where they work with the blue team when they're doing the test. So yeah. rather than just come to them at the end of it and say, here's the results, they actually talk through what they're doing and showing them where the problems are. And again, it's back to that, that education piece and how important it is that red team know what blue team do and and vice versa as well. It's having is having not the depth of knowledge perhaps across all those areas because it's impossible. There's so much to learn, but at least having slightly higher level than I have across the areas that you'd need to do the job. Yeah, I mean, I think any any blue team that gets any blue teamer that gets exposed to some of the the red team tools and tactics uh, is just going to be a better blue teamer because they're going to understand. Uh, the threats to, to whatever application system network, whatever is uh, that much better. Um, and then the red teamers, um, the more they understand and the more access they have to the, the blue team's tools, the better they can be because they can, again, keep finding new and interesting ways around them, you know? And so um, they'll keep developing new tactics as they understand how the EDR works. Like what is the EDR actually picking up on? What, what, how is the firewall actually identifying this application? Um, as they see that and get more access to that and can tinker with it and play with it, they can find better ways around it and then, again, bring everything back to the table to figure out, okay, now, now how do we fix it? So the great thing about this is on blue and red teams, there's just a lot of smart people that are trying to solve this problem. And I'm just, I, I feel like with that much energy, that much intelligence, you know, from the people perspective, we're, 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 we're in a good spot. It's just kind of putting it all together from a business perspective. And, and, ba and battling the big marketing budgets that are pushing a different message, perhaps. Yeah. That's my opinion, by the way, not a company representation. Um, okay, let's, let's finish off then with a question about being a CISO. So we've seen a massive increase in virtual CISOs um, with varying degrees of skill, I'd like to add. A um, little bit of a caveat there. I think there's a few people out there pretending to be virtual CISOs who perhaps aren't, which are given the, given the industry a slightly bad name. Do you see, without putting your head on the block and making comments like that, do you see the role of a CISO has changed from 10 years ago? Um, I asked the question because of something that we were talking about earlier when we were saying how important it is to have the technical, the technological understanding but also the ability that you've learned over your career to communicate to different levels of people. Do you see that changing moving forward? Do you see it staying the same? Yeah, I see it changing. I think it's already changed quite a bit. Um, you know, CISOs, there were, you know, far fewer of them. 
Um, I think, you know, there was probably a pretty similar mix of tech versus non-technical CISOs. I think today, probably a little bit more technical, just it's hard not to be. The tools are maybe a little bit easier to kind of be technical with as opposed to this straight coding command line. But um, I do see that um, we're in a better trajectory for that. And, and we're also, uh, we're being listened to in a, in a higher level than we had before. Uh, before yeah. it was very much of like your cost center, um, you, you know, just don't have a big budget and don't let us get breached and everything will be fine. And whereas now, you know, they're getting invited to the boardrooms, they're reporting, you know, they're not always reporting to other C-suites. Some of them report directly to the, the CEO. So, so that part's changing. Um, as far as the VC so part, that comes back to a bigger problem, which is a lot of organizations just can't barely afford a security team, never mind a CISO, you know? And so somewhere we need to fix that where you don't necessarily start with a CISO and no security staff, because that's kind of silly, but we, we need to have enough people that are um, within the CISO capabilities to come on these smaller teams to know how to build them out and to know how to go to the business and explain why they need to build out the team. And that's kind of like the, that's kind of the quandary we're in is that if they can't afford a team, they're not going to bring on this really high paying CISO to do it. But unless they do that, they're not going to be able to build it right. And they're not, and then they're going to, you know, and when they stumble and fall and like, see, we shouldn't have spent money on this. It's a big waste of money. This project never got off the ground. We spent $11 billion on this new widget. We didn't even get it deployed. Well, yeah, because you know it was you should, probably wasn't the right fit to begin with. Maybe it wasn't the right tool. You didn't bring in the right people. You didn't, you know. So I, I'm I'm hoping that even if VCSO is kind of like a gateway to that, we get enough people advising the company like, hey, this is how you need to do this, you know, and you need to bring in a team. You need to have a couple. You need a guy for this, a guy for this, a guy for this. Don't even worry about these tools over here. The shiny stuff over here is not for you yet. You need to work on. You need EDR. You just need something to quarantine malicious files and that's where you need to start <laughs> so so i heard a i heard a new terminology yesterday that might be because i'm new to the industry but i haven't heard it before and i'll give credit to who i heard it from it was a guy called paul flat who's a CISO in the uk and he said there's a new breed in the industry called bisos have you ever heard yeah. of such beast yeah is that true yeah no it's true um and it's it's not super new but it's becoming a little bit more um a little bit more uh prevalent than before and yeah the business information security officer um, is that is that a role that would fit in for the smaller firms or is this a role that's been made up for bigger firms to add another layer in i think it's bigger firms right now but i think what if you if you sit down and, and look at certain companies that are smaller they probably might need a BSO more than a CISO based off of their vertical well it's I've only said that based on what I've just heard you say about, you know, perhaps not being able to afford someone with CISO capabilities and knowledge. Not that I know how much a BISO charges because I only heard the name yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily a lesser thing than a CISO. It's more of a parallel thing. Okay. I would say it's a different skill set. Um, again, you know, the difference between business information and, and you know, whatever, you know, that, that's going to change per company. So it's a, it's a very unique thing for the vertical. But um, but I think for some smaller companies, it maybe is a better fit. Um, obviously, ideally, but would have both. But um, yeah, but I think that the BISO role is also going to evolve a little bit, too. I, I, I don't know. The, 
information and data and data privacy and, and the CISO and BISO thing, those are going to evolve a little bit because we're, I think we're about to see a bunch of regulation around around these breaches because there's happening so much and, and, and uh, privacy and data becoming such a, a hot topic. I think we're going to start seeing some mandates from especially public companies that they have to have sort of CISO, BISO, someone who cares about people's data safeguarding and watching it. There was, um, I mean, I'm in the UK, not in the US, but I saw, I think it was a bill that got passed recently. Was it by your Securities and Exchange Commission? With they were proposed, the SEC was proposing that all public companies had to have some sort of CISO yeah. knowledge expertise on boards. And I think that's, you know, I, I don't know if that's the solution or not, but I, I, what they're trying to solve is a real problem. And that's that we need to have this sort of, exp like if you're, if you're going to take public money and you're going to take investor money, then you have a you know some sort of obligation to have someone that knows how to protect it, you know, yeah. and protect the and protect the the crown jewels. And I think the heart of that something needs to happen. Whether that's the right answer or not, I won't really comment on that. See, the the the, the problem there is, I suppose, that each country is going to have their own regulation, and it's it's just a mess, isn't it? There's no way with how divided the world is at the moment that we're all going to agree on it. I mean, I see uh, I see China are trying to change the cybersecurity rules. I read that read that the other day, which. <laughs> Yeah. Which we obviously won't talk about politics, but the whole the whole thing's a bit of a mess at the moment. I suppose it's just trying to protect your own nest, isn't it? Is what we've got to do. Yeah, obviously Europe and US have some different opinions on um, consumer data and privacy and things like that. I won't even comment on who's right on that, but it's it would be better if we could, you know, come Agreed. to some, yeah. some global norms that, like, okay, at least this is kind of like a, across the board some some norms. But I just don't see that happening. No, me neither. Chris, we are pretty much out of time. Um, thank you so, so much for coming on. It's been very, very insightful as always. Massive thank you to everyone in the chat. Um, quick shout out there to Kerry and Musa, who I've seen all the way through. Thanks ever so much. And Marcus, you've dropped, dropped some good points in there as well. Thank you for tuning in. Um, we'll be back next week with Nia Voltman from Arnico. Um, he's coming on to talk about his experience as a CISO. Chris, any final words before we play out with a little quick stinger? uh be excellent to each other do you know what that they are the best words i've heard all day let's be kind to one another i think that's the thing that's missing in the world at the moment isn't it without a doubt so on that on that very positive note chris it's been an absolute pleasure everyone thank you very much it's now 1 a.m here in the uk for those of you watching live so it was a decaf coffee thank you chris i'm off to bed see you all later